My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. My guest today is Chelsea Simpson. Chelsea is the co-founder of the Emerging Leaders Project, a next-gen consultancy that helps organizations train their teams to navigate and thrive in complexity, a theme that we're going to cover a lot in our conversation today. She's also professor of creative team dynamics at Parsons University of Design at the New School in New York City. She's a certified emotional intelligence coach and a TEDx speaker. We have a wonderful conversation about the power of connection about how disasters like the coronavirus, which at the time of this recording was really starting to come into the national awareness, how disasters and extreme experiences like that can actually bring people together, how to care for each other in the midst of that complexity, and how to create a vein of silence and contemplation in your life so that you can really listen to what your true calling and true purpose is. This is a really good one. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, You can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with your friends and colleagues, subscribing on Apple Podcasts, giving us a high-star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. So let's dig in. Chelsea Simpson. Chelsea Simpson, hello. Hey, Andy. How are you? Doing really well. It's nice to be here with you. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Great to be in the Wonder Dome. Love Wonder Dome. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So Chelsea, you are a leadership coach. You are a professor of leadership and human development. You are a sustainable climate advocate. And I also encounter you personally in our meetings as this really creative human who walks to your own drummer. Mm. I'm really excited to have you on today because there's just so much happening in the world and so much that I feel like we could talk about. We could probably spend hours talking, but we'll do our best to see what threads we can pull on over the next hour or so and see what happens. I'm so excited. What a a treat. Great, great. So I would love to hear in whatever way is interesting to you today, how did you get on this journey? Like, Was there a, a moment that shook you awake and said, I need to help others? Was there uh, an influence from people in your life, mentors, parents? Like, what got you walking this path of, of leadership and change and human development? Yeah. Well, it seems like the older I get, the more I see my best and worst qualities or my story around those things, at least, having something to do with my parents. <laughs> had some relationship and uh my parents both are um deeply community oriented and uh my mom was a hospice nurse in new york city um in public housing projects in the 70s and 80s and um during the aids the beginning of hiv epidemic Mm. um and then working with people in hospice who um, so who were dying, who were at the end of their life, um, many of whom uh, had been homeless. 
so that's been, and there's this, uh, she's Irish Catholic from the Bronx. There's this sort of a certain brand of community orientation. I, I think that she embodies. And, um, so my dad also, um, he worked in a, in a community healthcare center in Boston with, uh, mostly people who spoke Spanish, many of whom, uh, were undocumented. So we had a lot of, uh, values oriented, um, not even realizing it was a choice or other people had any other way of being, um, and just family culture. And then grew up in a little town in Boston, a neighborhood of Boston called Charlestown. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, I didn't know that. Yep. Like from Charlestown. Charlestown. So at that time it was, uh, it's changed a lot, but it was predominantly a working class Irish Catholic neighborhood. Not, not dissimilar from my mom's neighborhood in the Bronx growing up, interestingly. Mm. Mm. And so that also, for, for in ways that were better, in ways that were uh, complex, <laughs> was had a strong community orientation. Yeah. And so something about, um, uh, I feel really lucky to have been informed by the sense of paying attention to certain to things and to people in a way that's beyond even anything conscious. Mm. Mm, it's beautiful. That's one answer. It could be lots of ways to slice yeah, it. Yeah, there's lots of ways to slice it, but I resonate with that a lot. I'm struck. I've often been struck. I was just talking to someone uh, yesterday, maybe, or two days ago, about her growing curiosity in hospice care and the life mm-hmm. there. And it strikes me that there is some analog between what, we do as coaches and what a really good hospice care provider does. Yeah. Do you feel that? Absolutely. And I think I'm I'm realizing, as I just said that story, that part of it felt incomplete. So I'm going to go to the, I'm going to share that other part and then I'm going to come back to you. Yeah, please. I realized a part I didn't mention that actually was equally, if not more formative was also just being with, there's a lot of, a lot of addiction, both in my family and in my neighborhood, a lot of, um, significant mental health crises, um, a lot of racism, a lot of, uh, and, that, and that felt very apparent to me from a young age. I'm an older child, I'm the oldest cousin on both sides, and um, Charlestown was being very rapidly gentrified in its earliest stages when I was born there. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of walking the line between the uppies and townies, which was pretty, rare. at that point, it felt rare. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways, and we lived across the street from um, public housing projects that's where most of my friends lived. So I think beyond like anything, without any words, without the word gentrification or any of these big words, there was just also a, a real being in touch with an awareness of like all the things that are very real, that good people um, have some deep stuff that isn't working is really painful. And so that part um, felt uh, equally as informative as like this and, and just as much a part of the, the part that is uh, maybe easier to name. Yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by another thread and maybe we'll, I do want to hear this if you have thoughts on the hospice coaching mm. connection, but I'm also struck by the ways in which we all deserve to be shielded from, from unnecessary suffering, but also the ways some of us have access to those shields that others don't. Right? And there's like a moment when all of us have to face our mortality and be able to have a wonderful hospice care provider 
is a real gift. But many of us are facing uh, that mortality day in and day out in all sorts of ways. And I'm hearing you describe your like a w- growing awareness and consciousness of that just right in your neighborhood, right around you as you grew up and, and, in the, and your parents' work and all of that stuff. And that's what's sort of like, you can start to tune into some of those imbalances and some of those privileges on one end or absences on other ends. And I'd love to see, I'd love to just explore that. That feels like a really rich theme for us to talk about today. Mm, sounds beautiful. And it's like, to, to, and in all that beautiful tapestry of possibility of conversation, just to tug on the hospice thread um, mm. that kind of ties into some of this other conversation too is, um, I've also been trained as a doula, and I've been a doula mm. for uh, my lifelong best friend. She was super, one of the most special experiences of my life. And something that really hit me that I felt like it was a breakthrough for me in, in coaching and in all my relationships was the sense that that I think hospice workers too also experience that at the end of the day, we are doing this journey. Our journey is our own journey, and no one else can do it for us. And no, and it's actually disrespectful to the soul almost to try to, to, to that what we often can get can crash towards people who are trying to help yeah. in whatever way. And being there for birth or for death makes makes it so very clear that uh, we can assist, we can accompany, we can hold space for. Um, and it actually is a different, it's a different conversation in ways than. Um, I think how we often show, I think with good intentions can show up for each other with the intention to help. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I was just, I had another conversation I had yesterday where I was tuning into the distinction between invitation and expectation. Mm. Even when we show up to help, we show up with an expectation for ourselves or for the other person that they, they need our help or they need to be changed or they need to be fixed. And I've just like gone down that road too many times and, and pushed too many people away inadvertently with all the best intentions because I was not invited, right? It's almost like closing a door on possibility, even when we think we're there to help. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably few of us, well, at least can relate to that deeply. And having people try to help me in that way too. Um, and it's something that I, I, uh, I went to a, a small Quaker college called Guilford College in North Carolina. And that was a big like uh, milestone in my next iteration of getting how I wanted to ex- express my, my professional and personal life in the world. It's something that I feel like Quakers do so well is this understanding of the inner light and of silence and of people having their own uh, meeting both solitude and community. And in fact, the two are in mimic without each other. There's a phrase by this theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's something along the lines of, let the person who is, um, who, is without sol- who is without solitude beware of community, let the person who is without community beware of solitude. Mm. That there's something mm. that, um, that, you know, if we, if we don't have develop a, a capacity to speak the language of and have, make space for our own messy um, sometimes unclear, rich, not like soul, then um, we, it's, uh, there's limitations for what we're able to create and with others or ourselves. Yeah. It's a beautiful quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is that the theologian's name? Okay. That really lands with me. So I'm noticing um, 
you, your mother is in hospice, you're trained as a doula. And for those who don't know what a doula is, could you just say like the, a, a sentence? Yeah, yeah it's, it's accompaniment to someone who's giving birth and, and their partner's accompaniment during the birth process. There's also before and then there's uh, postpartum doulas who might accompany a person or for a partnership after. Yeah. And that word accompaniment feels also really relevant to what hospice caretakers do. There's this, this, uh, I, I love the word threshold, right? And moments like birth and giving birth and dying are very obvious, powerful, like mind-blowing thresholds. Can you say more about that accompaniment in the context of what you do now as a leadership coach and mm. as a professor and as an advocate and activist? Like, how is that? showing up for you and and your life right now at this moment as you dance between solitude and community yeah i have a that's it feels like this tenderness comes up in that question um because i i have this sense that feels particularly strong this week maybe because uh this is the week that the coronavirus has really become such a um uh all-encompassing conversation globally yeah. Um, and something that I uh, I reference often, a term I reference often that I won't get too term term ridden, but just because it's useful in this particular context, I think is is VUCA. This term VUCA. Mm. It's an acronym, right? Acronym, yeah. And it stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Mm. Mm-hmm. So something that I think is so useful about that term in these times, and that comes back to your question about accompaniment is that whether it's talking about climate change or ecological collapse, whether we're talking about rapid tech cycles and the possibility of, you know, for many businesses, if some social media platform goes down or anything, these things could happen that could change any, every industry rapidly within a day, you know, with political polarization, with economic polarization, with immigration challenges the world over, with Brexit, with Trump, with all these protests, there's a lot of ways to slice it, but that kind of, category i find that buga phenomena being useful mm. and for leadership at this time moving forward we're never going to not have more and more buga you know my natural disasters will be coming with increased regularity this unpredictability is is now the norm so in that context where the human the human design in this context is experience anxiety grief anger rage discomfort and we need a better emotional intelligence toolkit mm-hmm. to be able to not only just survive, um, but also to be able, like, to be able to bring people with us to create possibility, to create opportunity in the exact world that we're all living in, because we're, there's no going back. Yeah. So this idea of accompaniment feels particularly important to me, and I feel so like passionate about sharing these tools. Um, because I, I, I know that we all need them. I need more and more. I need to be in constant practice and conversation. And by sharing them, I get to also keep honing my own tools, um, and getting a richer and deeper understanding of every, you know, class I teach with every person I coach, with every conversation I have. Um, and it's like through that, that I think all of us will be able to create possibilities at a systemic level that we mm. don't know what that will look like yet. Mm. Mm. It strikes me that much of the anger and fear in a in this VUCA world, which again is is volatility, 
uncertainty, uncertainty. complexity, complexity and ambiguity. Yeah. 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 So much of uh, those emotions come from a, a deep human desire to know what's coming next. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you use the phrase emotional intelligence, which is a really important skill set and tool set. I'm wondering how you have been working with people to navigate deeper into that ambiguity with more capacity for not knowing. And how does emotional intelligence connect to that? So um, unlike a kind of like shiny, practically, professionally note, um, emotional intelligence has been cited by all these big big names, big institutions, Harvard Business Review as being the number one predictor now of career success over uh, formal education or prior experience. Wow. I didn't, it was not I didn't just hear that. The coach saying this, it's like, this is something that I think is really becoming more and more apparent because it's about interpersonal and intrapersonal capacity to make shit happen. That's not the formal definition. But that's <laughs> I like, that's that's what that's a good working <laughs> definition. Yeah. yeah, and, and interpersonal and intrapersonal. Quick, can you give us a quick definition of those two? Decisions? Yeah, so like, so in when okay, so this week, for example, with coronavirus, right? Self-awareness. So the foundational tool of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Notice what, how, what we're experiencing, how and what we're bringing to a situation. Have us have an understanding of how we're experienced by others, and all of us have work to do. Like. The most current neuroliteracy research shows that all of us, no matter how woke we think we are, my, I'm part of this, no matter how, whatever we think we are, we're about 5% aware, conscious of what we think, say, and do. Wow. That kind of humility of just being like, I got work to do. Like, we're having this conversation because I do not have it figured out. I'm like, you know, very clear that that's the case. <laughs> There's plenty of areas for improvement, and that's okay, too. And all of us like get to be in the space where it's not actually about being being the one who has it all figured out or being the one who has it all together or perfect, but it's about how do we then assist each other and lend hands to share what we got. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're hiking and someone has gorp to try to use, someone has you know, granola M Ms or whatever, someone has grapes, someone else has Gatorade, it's like it's not about having all the tools and answers, but get into getting into the one niche, the, the niche and tools that are appropriate and are passionate that you're passionate that you have to share. So for me, this emotional intelligence feels like a vehicle that has so much potential because it's foundation of self-awareness mm. uh, and, and uh, self-management, which includes like focus, which includes, you know, communication, which includes motivation, these things, these like, uh, all these off-ramps that can we can keep working with and coming back to over the lifespan. Yeah, and so that that's the intra-personal, like relating a health, more a healthier yeah. relationship to self that's grounded in more self-awareness than you might have at this current moment. Yep, yep, and then with and then so it's social awareness, it's self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, social management. So those are the kind of also the week. And the and that level includes how we're aware of how we are in organizations or teams. Mm-hmm. And we all like it's hard to be on a team, whether it's a family, whether it's a business, you know, like our stuff's gonna come up. So how do we make teams that are resilient enough and have enough of a foundation where we can we can be resilient and adaptable in a VUCA world? Mm-hmm. 
have movements that are able to actually create impact and meet, meet the challenge of climate change in a whole way. Yeah. I, I think Darwin was quoted as saying on the, on the, on the idea of adaptable that, that it's not the smartest or the strongest who survives over the course of evolution. It's the most adaptable. You know? What I hear you saying is that emotional intelligence is a core, is a descriptor of a core set of ways of being that help us be more adaptable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that I, it's interesting because I've often had the assumption, although I've been exposed to, to emotional intelligence and EQ, so this assumption has since gone away, but I bet there are lots of people who still have it, that emotional intelligence is about being kind of this like sort of emotional ninja, this savant who can walk into a room and just read everyone's emotion, like, oh, Chelsea's feeling this, and and you know, so-and-so is feeling that. And, and it sounds like there might be a place where you get to a deeper social awareness, but what I'm hearing you saying is that actually a lot of it starts with just being better able to tune into what's going on for you in a given context, whether that's in your family context or your work context, to, to notice that you're feeling things and then to, to be able to understand and interpret those in a healthy way, as opposed to just letting, letting that feeling send you off on some action without any reflection, mm-hmm. that, right? Mm, I, I love that. I love that. And what I think about is uh, something that... Uh, Someone, uh, event we were both at this past December is uh, the Next Practice Institute. And Thomas yeah. said that I love this German mystic philosopher trainer. That you know, when I'm I'm looking at your face now through the screen, and I'm I'm seeing this this you know your face. I'm seeing the face of Andy. Also, the, my whole neuro wiring, my whole past experience of is is creating my concept of you, of my mm-hmm. concept that may actually not have something to do like with how you see yourself. Mm. And maybe both of them, and, and neither of those things may be fully accurate. You know, we all have what we think, what we think about ourselves isn't always accurate, isn't always reality. Most of us have some stories about ourselves for any number of reasons that may not actually be reality. So, but then maybe there's some things we may, we may, you know, have a sense of, of course, as well, some self-knowledge. Things I may see about you and experience about you, um, are, are also a reflection of how I see myself. Mm. You know, there's also a piece of that in my other stories and experiences. And so I think part of self-awareness too is how do we try to, in, in, you know, have that aspiration, the North Star of diminish, of, of being more aware of all the stories going on that we all have without exception. So in, in, in the best possible scenario, I'd be able to be with you, Andy, the human, and be present with both, both of us, be able to, to be present with each other as, as two humans. Mm. That's actually a pretty bold aspiration. Most of us don't get there. Yeah. 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 I think that there is a version of how we can move through the world where people are just players on our stage or just sort of two dimensional cutouts in our version of what's happening. And the truth, of course, is that we're all players on each other's stage and that the stage is much bigger and none of us are the star. That can be really hard to, to let go of. It can be really hard to connect to. It can be scary to connect to. And I think in this time where, like, our generations, like millennials and younger, like we're the we're the first have been exposed to all these global stories through technology. Mm-hmm. So we also have had, and and younger generations more so than us in some ways. Um, and so it's it's actually not it's it's actually kind of new. This, this idea, like 
that to the degree to which we're totally not in the star anyway. <laughs> There's so many other stories that we're constantly, constantly exposed to. Yeah, yeah. So, so that brings me to a question that I that I had have been ha wanting to talk to you about for a while, which is specifically what it means to be a young leader in all of this context. <laughs> this is really important to me. I'm a father of a two-year-old and we're having our second child in about five months from now in July. And that means in 15 years, our daughter will be uh, a senior in high school or thinking about college, if that's even still a thing, right? Like there's a lot of unknown yeah. about what what stories we've told ourselves about the path towards leadership. But young people right now are growing up exposed to complexity that, that even people of our generation weren't, and that certainly people of our parents' generation weren't. Um, and that has a formative impact on how they show up just as human beings, but there also puts a, there's also, I get a sense from a lot of young people that there's both an emerging pressure and anxiety for them to, to like deal with a mess that's been left for them, but also like an emboldened realization that uh, adults don't have all the answers. Ooh, that was a tough one. <laughs> and that they need to like, kind of like, okay, well then that means we all have to figure out the answer. So there's sort of these two forces coming into play for young people. And I know that you're a professor, you work with undergraduates. Like I just would love to hear you riff on how what we're talking about around emotional intelligence and leadership and being with people is especially important for these young leaders. Hmm. I love this question. This is something I feel so grateful to get to be around and I mean being a teenager has always been hard it's never been it's always been a time that like our prefrontal cortex brain wise isn't developed so it's really super super focused on your peers and am I enough do I belong am I whatever enough it's like hard you know <laughs> that's that's consistent throughout the, there's some things that, that I think are like we can all relate to um and are just how vulnerable um I know that I felt as a teenager and how um yeah, so there's that piece of just just what it means to be in that time of life. But then there's these pieces now where, you know, it, we look we look forward to uh, to a future, to a professional life, for example. And parents say, you know, we want you to get a good job, we want you to have some security, go to college, and then we see, you know, a lot of discussion in the news about incredible debt that people who are just before them that millennials and old, like you know older gen zers have and not always a clear path to a specific position and often sometimes those positions are in industries that um have been part of this mm. creating ecological collapse and that ecological collapse can feel very real to young people because they're gonna have to deal with it myself included it's not like oh well i'll be here for that you know i'll be here for some crazy potentially really unprecedented crazy stuff um, and the path to I could buy a home, raise kids, if that's what someone wants for a plum track, that's not that's not straightforward either. Is the prices to live in a city where most of the jobs are, like all the paths that have once been sort of the carrot at the end of the stick are are not really as real for most people, for many people, like my students. So it brings a whole other question of like, so what, so what is it? What is it that I want? And also like young people see how like they know how fast tech changes. They know how fast the internet platform can come and go. Like they get and they see and experience that. So they also don't have the, I think that they have a different sense of rhythm of um, how much is possible in a given time frame. 
um, which is actually healthy um, in many ways, I think, that I think some older people may not get that, how, how volatile these, mm. you know, professional worlds can be. Mm. So this is also where, um, I mean, and also like there's on a, on a mental health note, a lot of my students and talking to other faculty here, and it's like actually quite um, pandemic with teenagers now are having like a lot of anxiety, panic attacks, very regular panic attacks. They're starting to have a training here at the new school where I teach um, for faculty about what to do if a student has a panic attack in class. Yeah. It's 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 not rare. It's not uncommon. In fact, it's quite uh, it's quite the norm these days. Wow. wow. So, so it it brings in another question, which I think has been one for a long time. We've had held in theory, but now getting very down to brass tacks. What is the point of an education? What is the point of to, of, of spending all this time and energy? And like, what are we telling young people that actually helps them function and live their lives and are able to learn things that are useful for them? So, you know, we've obviously not talked about things like in many environments, things like credit scores or things like, you know, like financial health and wellness and safety and like well-being and how do you breathe and how do you communicate with people in tough times, like things that everybody needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think there's, there, for a lot of young people, they're having a lot of dis- deep disillusionment. And like, there's this author you all know, Harari. Yeah. Yeah, who wrote *Sapiens* and *Twenty One Ideas of the Twenty First Century*. He wrote a great article that I always have my students read, uh, which is uh, saying things that young, something like think like things that kids need to know to survive in 2050. And one of the things he says is like adults mean well but they they don't always know better like you have to kind of like like the answer at this point is to know yourself and like self-knowledge and get a sense of how you are able to reinvent yourself Mm. because the art of reinvention is the art of the 21st century Mm. Mm. so that's that that this ei and leadership development i really feel like it's how do i keep getting better myself and teach and supporting and sharing that information with others about this art of reinvention So I sit down, imagine I sit down across from you for the first time. I'm wrestling with some of the complexity that you just shared. I'm a young person, or maybe I'm an older person. Maybe I'm on the other side of this. And those stories that were true for me aren't true for the young people I love. Or trying to like, so just imagine I'm sitting across from you wrestling with this in whatever way. And if you have a real client that you work with that comes to mind, you don't have to share any details. But how do you begin to invite me, accompany me mm. into that complexity in a way that doesn't um, give me a panic attack? <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing. This has been like, I'll get, I'll get into specifics in a moment, but just as like a broad headline too, something you mentioned earlier about creativity um, and fun. Like sometimes in, the, in, my, in my own life, but in the world of development and coaching, we can be very serious. Yeah. And I'm and I get it like the apocalyptic stuff you know it's like pretty heavy you know it's like kind of feels like hard to joke about but I also think we're in times where like we can like we can make it fun if we can like be laughing about stuff if we can like bring creativity and like that kind of joy of like like the, the core human stuff into it we don't have to be having panic attacks in the process right we don't have to be taught like we can be willing to go into the shadow lands of our, of ourselves. And that's great for moments. It's not, that's a tool we need. We can also overuse that tool. 
and mm. we also can just like freaking be people and dance around and be stupid and you know make mistakes and laugh with our friends and like make room for that stuff yeah that just just as an aside there i saw a video recently of course we've already mentioned a bit but coronavirus is happening now and in china it's you know, it's hard for us to imagine, but cities have been closed down for weeks and weeks. That, you know, it's just very intense. But there's a video of a person who made a hazmat suit out of like a dinosaur costume. And so they're like walking around Wuhan, China in this like ridiculous, really funny dinosaur costume and just like getting footage of themselves doing that. And you can imagine like a human being who's asked to stay indoors, rightfully so, and can only go outside under certain circumstances, you can start to go a little bonkers. And here to your point is someone who's like, I'm going to have some fun with this, not because I disrespect the gravity of the situation we're in, but because if I don't, then I'm not going to be able to get through this. And so it's like that, like ability to, to step into lightness, even in the midst of a really dark time is a core adaptability skill. I think that we, that some of us at least have and that others can cultivate. Does that land with you? Yeah, 100%. And like, and also my something that I know that takes time and iteration that I'm always focusing on um, and always have room to grow and also feel like is uh, is it sometimes I feel like talents can also be a place for you room to grow, but meeting people where they're at. We all have different reasons why we're in this conference. Like we're in, we, we would reach out to someone for support. We have different things that are important to us, different goals and different pace that makes sense for us. So it's also this process I think of how do we be respectful for the soul and create space enough where people are able to then like to be able to come to their own wisdom. And it's, it's almost like with birth and death, like people have, do have their own answers. I do have that belief that it's not an answer for me by any means. It's helped digest, digesting a lot of stuff. It's helped digesting information and helped to carve out the space and clear out all of the junk. It's like the Brie Kondo style, right? How do you just clear out the space? <laughs> yeah. How do you your own best answer because you know i don't know yeah yeah this there's almost uh i hear an invitation in that into the recognition that we have an interior landscape or an interior house that we can relate to and decorate and let sunshine into and let go of some things that no longer serve just like marie kondo helps people do in their literal actual house in the outside world is that right yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, people to decorate their their house, their return. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You're, so, you, so, so, tell me more about like. Uh, I think what I'm tuning into is I'm imagining someone hearing this really rich conversation and saying like, "Yep, yeah, I get it. Emotional intelligence. I've heard the heard the phrase emotional intelligence. I know I need to have it. And what you're telling me is I need to start with self awareness. And uh, maybe I'm doing that in a fun way or a heavy way, whatever's right for me. But how do you help me start on that journey? What, what might you start to do to help me begin to be more self-aware before I just am overwhelmed by the complexity of the yeah. world that I'm living in? Oh, yeah. Well, one thing that's so such an incredible like corollary to all of the very reasonable, very human uh, mental health opportunities <laughs> that exist for, for you know, today the society and culture it's also there's an abundance of resources like whether it's just like instagram accounts or youtube videos or things or just that's like one level of just like really simple really easily accessible you pull out your phone right now and find something that might speak to you whether it's mm-hmm. someone big like Brene brown or whomever 
or just people have all, you know, like, whoever resonates and makes you feel like, okay, I have a little more space, mm-hmm. I have a little more space of where I'm at. I feel like I'm able to be in this moment, be myself. Mm-hmm. There's also in, in most places, in every place, there's either online meetups or there's things you can go to that are like different kinds of, whether it's like, whether it's just like a, like a therapy group or whether it's like a climate change dialogue group or whether it's some sort of like healing modality. There's all kinds of things that are happening in the world for that. Um, there's like, uh, yeah, there's just so much possibility. Um, a book that I always, as far as like a resource, I, that I that changed my life that I know a lot of people have had that effect is this book called the artist way. Oh, yeah. by Aaron. Yeah. And the two fundamental practices of this book, which I'd recommend for anybody to get and look through, it's like a 12 week creativity regimen of creativity to be able, being able to create, just being, just clearing out it's the same concept, clearing out the junk. And, and we all have junk, so there's no shame in having junk. Um, but it's morning pages, writing in your journal, three pages every morning. An artist date. And an artist date is just three hours a week, which is actually can be a lot, right? But then her premise said, especially if you're busy, to make extra care that you, that you carve out those three hours a week. And you do something that you wouldn't normally do that would delight you, that's really interests you. Mm. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be, you know, something crazy. It could be, right? So it could be like, for someone I know, it was like they had this interest in going to, the, to like a button store, like like a Michaels, right? Ever and like just walking around and like like getting some buttons to sew on some clothes, and that was a fun thing they wouldn't prioritize normally. Or going to like an old bookstore, or walking around the city aimlessly or going to a museum or going to see a show or going to a painting class or like just doing something that would refill your well. It's fun for you for three hours. Mm. And that can bring such a sense of, of self-awareness. It doesn't always have to be slogging through something heavy and that, that's appropriate to someone with that's okay, but it also can just be letting yourself be delighted. Yeah. I have, I have prescribed the artist state to a number of my clients. It's a powerful Often what they find when they go is they come out, a couple things happen. They come back feeling way more energized than they have in a long time. Like I just spent three hours of my time. And usually when I spend three hours of my time, I'm exhausted. But instead I'm like, I'm awake, I'm alive. And and then they just like the mind, their mind has time to like the, the deeper mind or the lateral thinking mind, just new ideas and possibilities without any, forcing it without any attempt to make it happen. They think of a new business idea or a new way to talk to their spouse or, you know, something that wouldn't have emerged because the space simply wasn't there for it. Exactly. Like I do, I am holding question for myself and often these days, my own um, like leading edge is what would it look like to just assume that things that I thought were hard were easy? What would it be like to just play with ease more? Nice. You know, Nice. What's uh, what's one thing that you're thinking of that you're that you're assuming is hard that might look different if you were to make it easy? Well, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, and so you know, there's a lot of like discuss discussion around that is like, oh, that's so hard, or like you know, and there's moments where it can feel really freaking scary. This week actually was one of them where it felt kind of scary because there was some important work that was canceled because of the coronavirus. So I definitely felt that sense of like. Um, like survival, fear, you know, like root stuff coming up. And so I, 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 I see this uh, 
entrepreneurial path for me and this work as being a, it's like a faith practice it's like my and like I by faith I don't mean religious for me personally but I mean like having faith that if I'm doing what I really want to do and that I really feel called to do and I have skills with it will work out somehow even if I don't know how the f that's going to happen you know in any given moment and there's been plenty where I have not known how anything was going to work out and so what do I have to do to build my resiliency to like and build to be the kind of person who can be willing to be in that space of total VUCA, personal VUCA. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The life of the entrepreneur is sort of this whole inner world of VUCA, isn't it? (laughs) Totally. Totally. It's like, I'm not enough. I need to do like 8 million things. I need to, but I need to do this first. Oh my God, I need more money for that. Like, it's just all of these, like, it can be easy to just get, and I have moments where I like wake up in the middle of the night, like that whole stuff can happen. Right. Yeah. And what if like I'm holding, like letting it be a bit easier, letting it, let it like, like, and I feel like every time I've come, maybe there's been three or four times in the past two years since I started this, where I felt the sense of like, how is it going to work out with all these things? Yeah. And I feel like every spiral, I get a little more spacious, you know, and then, and I hope, the next spirals continue to be easier than I've been with that experience. Yeah. And just put in, and like skip some of the stuff, like the kind of heady shutdown for me, that's what it looked like not enough. Oh my God, whatever. Like, let me just watch Netflix in bed. It's too much. Like, like on that level of stuff. Yeah. And like, like more and acknowledge whatever, and then like get into, you know, just like act in faith as if it's all figured out. And it's my job to figure out what that is. Yeah possibility yeah there's something in there for me right like you're sitting here now having this conversation with an increased self-awareness about how you can get into spirals how you can doubt your own self-worth and and at some point six months ago you were laying in bed watching netflix feeling all of those things and in that moment it can just feel like there's no path through yeah right and and yet here you are made it through even if all the questions haven't been answered and all the all the boxes haven't been checked off six months later here you are and it's not a given right like it's not in a there's no no guarantees but but there's something in what i'm hearing you that feels really valuable not only to entrepreneurs but to anyone who is inside of whatever fear or doubt or um sense of lack of self-worth that just seems like it's the whole it seems like it's the whole world and they're mm. inside of it and mm. you're saying like i've been inside of it but i also realize i can actually step outside of it and get a lot more space and see that it's that it's inside me that i'm not inside of it is that right yeah and, and yeah it's beautiful i love that phrasing that's really poetic and i and i do feel like this is actually as, as much as any of the external work, this is actually, this is actually the work too, because I do, I have a, some feeling somewhere in my heart, whether or not it's true. Um, and in some way, yeah, is that like, as these good conditions continue, there'll be more and more of us in some iteration of some similar journey by my raising my hand and sort of saying, I'm willing to go first. I'm willing to go and be in this way and place. Mm-hmm. I'm also building up like the, my, my genuine, capacity to navigate it in myself first which is what i have to do to be able to actually offer support to somebody else right so it's not just like it'll be better it's fine don't worry but sometimes it's a little bit like shut the f up how do you know like what are you talking about but someone who's been there you know someone who's really been like who who gets 
what you're experiencing and feeling. It's a different, there's a different capacity for listening and for, and for actually creating possibilities, my experience. Mm. You said you used the word faith and, and a light bulb just went out for me that earlier you described going to a Quaker college. Was it Guilford College? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering in whatever way, I'm wondering how faith is alive to you in a really like rubber meets the road kind of way. And, and if at all, how does that experience of being in a faith-based learning community inform what you do now, even if you no longer identify with that faith? Yeah. It seems, I just I'll say one more thing. It seems to me that a lot of us are longing for so much of the best of what religion has had to offer us around faith and community and contemplation, yeah. but aren't seeing it in the places that, that claim to have it. And so we're left yet again to find our own way into faith. And I would just love yeah. to hear you talk about that. That's, a, that's such a fun question. And it's funny, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I get a chance to share about this because I don't often talk about it because I think a lot of people don't know what Quakers are and think it's like Amish people or like oatmeal guy. Yeah. Or like, I went to some really religious school, which wasn't my experience. It's kind of like BU is a Jesuit school in theory and so is BC, like or Fordham. Like it, it's affiliated and that's part of the thing, but it's, it's totally optional and it's not like a, a mandatory part of the process or particularly active if you choose not to have any part of your life at all. But, um, and it was very different from where I am in Boston. I went to Boston Latin School, a big academic competitive high school. So it was like a whole different world still in North Carolina, a different conversation than like Northeast secular liberalism. So, which for me was important actually, because I wanted something that was different, but that also was, and that was values aligned. And, and Quakers, when you want to familiar, um, what's so cool about them is that you can be a hybrid Quaker. Um, there's, it's very loose. It's really not about like converting or anything specific thing. The meetings are an hour of silence. And if someone chooses to share, they can, there's no clergy. There's no premise that everybody has their own relationship with their own higher power. And so it's just accompanying each other in silence as the premise of the, the Quaker meeting. And then there's a potluck afterward often or food because it's very much about community and it's very much about living. Everyone else is an inner light too. It was very social justice based. And Quakers were hugely involved, disproportionately for their small numbers in the Underground Railroad, in the civil rights movement, um, in Vietnam protests. So I actually went to the Quaker college because my dad had joined the Navy to pay for medical school. And this was uh, during the 80s. And then there was these wars with Iran and Nicaragua. And he decided that he didn't want to be involved anymore, which was a big deal for him. And so and it was really complicated to enlist. He was living in New York City. And he went to a Quaker meeting because he heard they were um, nonviolent and they helped him de-enlist. And so he became active in a Quaker meeting. And it was just going and sitting in silence, like not like it's really not, you know, nothing more is expected of anybody. And so I feel so lucky the older I get, the more the world changes. I feel like I won the lottery, which I did not feel like at the time necessarily by finding the school because there was this just sense of, there was that, that, that spiritual, and by spiritual, I mean interconnected. There was this premise of being interconnected and of the, the importance of these values-based conversations and these conversations around faith. What do we believe in? Because we have faith in something, whether or not we're aware of it. You know, we have faith in science. We might have faith in the free market. We might have faith in powers of media. We might have faith in our family. We might have faith in our partner or our kids. Or we have faith in something. 
Um, so for me to be really in question with um, a deep dialogue with myself, what do I have faith in? Mm. And what is my own, do I order my beliefs by interconnection? And how do I show that and how I live and how that's supported by people who are older than me and who, are, who have been in this conversation for a long time? At that age was so important. Yeah. So one of the things that actually I don't really talk about much, but um, my first like experience, I went to a Quaker meeting beginning of my sophomore year of college which was new to me I wanted to try it and I had been feeling really dissatisfied like I had this amazing first year at the school and I was then hungry for more new more novel more novelty more more learning through experiential new people new circumstances like I got this hunger from Guilford um, for that and I, I was just tired of being a student I've been a student you now like many 18 year olds have been a student my whole life and I wasn't sure what to do with that. And Katrina hit. Mm. And I went to a Quaker meeting and I got somehow, I didn't expect it, but I got super clear. Like, I want to go be part of that relief effort. Like, I want to go do that. And I've never felt since or before anything that was like so clear. It just had sort of like, it wasn't like I thought about, I didn't, I just knew like this was actually the thing that I should do. Um, and I figured out how to get my money back for the semester that I paid, and um, and I did, and that was like, hugely life changing. Oh my gosh, I'm connecting. Uh, there's so much in there we can pull on, but one of the things I just want to underline for people listening is, you essentially went to a meeting and sat in silence for an hour, mm-hmm. and became clear about one of the biggest decisions you'd ever made in your life up to that point. And wow. Yes, exactly. At 18, mm-hmm. we were talking earlier about the artist state. How you can go for a few hours. Yes. We are, we are just, we have just enveloped our, like every little, there's a metaphor of a philosophy professor who sort of fills a, a jar with stones and says, is this jar full? And everyone's like, yeah, it's full. And he's like, okay, well, what if I pour gravel into it? And he shakes it around and gravel kind of fits in the pieces. You're full now. Yeah, okay, it's full now. Then he does sand and he does water. And at, like the question is, at one point, is the jar full? But it often really feels like most of us just fill the jar with like sand and don't let the big, important stuff get in there first. Because if you just fill it with sand, you can't get the stones in. Ooh, that's I like hear you saying that these moments, artist states, moments of silence, places where you can really just listen. That's like those are these big stone moments where stuff can come through that you're not going to hear if you're just in the static, if you're just in the sand all the time. That's I have faith in that. I have faith in that. Yeah. And your faith, like what I hear you saying is that you have faith in that and it's proven true in your own experiences of being Mm -hmm. repeatedly over over many years and in many contexts. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And it's what's so like humbling and powerful is to realize I don't like I then made the decision and then took the actions to follow through on it, going to talk to the registrar, telling my parents, you know, doing the things that um, I did those things. But I feel like the original decision, it, it did feel to me like it was like, like I'm like making space for like, what if I'm like a cell? You know, like what if I'm like, if, if people are like someone's a liver cell and someone's an eyeball cell and someone's a shoulder or bone. And we actually don't all have to be all the things, but we have some, thing something that we can do here that will provide some expression why we're here that can bring us some satisfaction and I feel like in in my experience when I've been able to slow down enough to hear that I've often been led as my experience to something that has 
been a game changer and opened up so many doors and possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. If I could, I feel like that's the one thing if I could invite everyone listening into a possibility, the possibility that there is something that you can't think your way into that, that you could listen to and listen for and see where it leads you. And if you do that, you will end up in some of the most remarkable places. Yeah. And, and be out of the, uh, and like, there is so much we all have, I have, and this, there can be such a scarcity feeling of like, what if I do that? And what if I don't have the job I need for this thing? Or what if I don't like my student loans or my whatever, credit card debt, my, what my parents think, what my community think, what put me in line to be the kind of 50 year old. Like there's an infinite amount of questions that are, that are, that are important questions. They're not questions that are to be dismissed. And what, what if some of the answers to those questions too might not always come from having the exact plan figured out, like to keep, to keep a possibility that there are some things that, um, that there's, there's sometimes our, like sometimes our answers don't come from just our head. And that part of that is like, we also like on a, on a nerdy basis, nerdy, like science basis, like we have neurons in our heart and in our gut. So I'm also like, by inviting in wisdom from other sources, it actually isn't just something that's, you know, that, that has to be something that's, that's mystical. If that's your, if that's, if that, if that ticks, make you tick, then great. But it also can be from another slight like lens and the same phenomena, like creating a capacity to, to get, gather more data from different kinds of neurons. Yeah. Yeah. Some scientists have gone so far as to call this claim that we have three brains, that we have this head brain, this heart brain and the gut brain. But even, you know, even if that's not true or if there's a semantic argument there, it is clearly physiologically true that our, our nervous system and all of its functioning doesn't just live up here in the skull. That it's that that when we talk about feeling something in the heart, that's both metaphorical and and literally happening. Yeah. yeah. It's pattern recognition. We're getting those neurons are absorbing patterns and taking in data. Each of these places they're taking in different kinds of data. Right. And right. so it's like allowing ourselves to make the most informed choice with the widest data set, which is what you know you'd always hope for to make the best decisions. Making decisions not not straightforward often. No. no. Um, gosh, there's so much more we could talk about. We're coming down the home stretch here. I wonder if maybe we could take just a few minutes to talk about the, the thread that we haven't spent much time explicitly on for you, which is around ecological sustainability, climate activism. And, and the reason I'm feeling called to ask you about that is because you had this moment as, I don't know, how old were you? Uh, eight, 18, 19? But mm-hmm. so I'm going to go down to Katrina and help yeah. with that. And so yeah. I, was that the moment where you came online around, around the recognition that our planet's global climate is shifting and that we need to figure out how to live with it in a different way? Or was that there for you sooner? Or Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that two things. For me, the ecological collapse is about like, for, for me personally, I, I'm, I, I love being by the ocean, love being around trees, I love all that. And the, those things are going to be fine. It's human, like regardless of what happens, it's human that actually are at risk. Yeah. 
it's humans that I really have the, I'm in the game for. <laughs> and so, so from a young age and just my community, I was aware that like there's some systemic stuff that is not working here. Um, and is like really bad. Um, and then being in Mississippi, the, the thing that prompted me to go was watching the news. I remember and with my friend and roommate in college and, just and watching people walk through the water and holding all their stuff on like um, old doors and their kids above their heads and like walking in water up to their chest and being like, this is happening in my country. This is so different than the country than the my country that I'm familiar with. Like, what is going on? Like, what? Are, like, just realizing this huge gap in my personal experience and um, and being there was such an, an awakening to. For one, this is going to sound weird, but like the, the magic that can come in disaster relief moments when people are coming together and working together. Mm. When I was there, this, it was this Methodist church campground, but like a non-religious thing at all. And there were people from, there were like recent grads from Dartmouth, there were a bunch of them who came down. There were truckers from Kansas. There were like, um, like you know, homemakers from middle America. There was like old tech people. There was just such a cool cross slice of Americans. And then people who were there, like all of us being together, like doing physical work together to rebuild people's homes, it was this high, this like total high, personally and professionally, that I'd never experienced anything like. So part of it was just like, wow, this is an amazing experience. Like, and I, like do people know about this? <laughs> this is like amazing. And then with that, like the devastation, like there's like dead bodies that, you know, you could smell and see and like packs of dogs and just like so many people with completely destroyed homes and lives were already on the brink, right? And and really getting like, oh, this this require like getting how much is required to rebuild one town. I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, and there's obviously other towns that were effective, but I was invested in this one town and just getting how long it would take and how little those five months I was there was and how little one person could do. It got me awake to like, this is, as these things keep happening, like, what are we going to do? Like, this is, this is big. Yeah. I think that was where a lot of this like real gut level, like, Oh, this is, uh, this is going to be quite a lifetime. Mm. Mm. I think it was Dorothy Day. I'll have to fact check myself on this, but Dorothy Day is um, a Christian thinker and theologian and is really interested in these questions of what bring people together. In the wake of the fires in San Francisco in like the early 1900s, saw that phenomenon that you just described. The ways in which people who normally don't identify with each other and often in many cases or even see themselves as as opposing each other politically or religiously or socially or whatever all of that falls away in these moments where where it's very clear that that could have just that could have been me carrying my family through the water if i lived 100 miles west mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, like i'm going to show up for that because all of the other stuff just doesn't matter as much the other thing that was I'm realizing and in, in, in like we're clarifying this conversation was I was I was probably the youngest not one of the young youngest there by far. Most people were a lot older than me. Mm. And I can roll with I'm I'm kinda used to that on some level, but I, I think I had part of my takeaway was also realizing at a young age, like this great cause, great work, 
amazing people, but there was no, there was no kind of, there was no processing. There was no, like we were all going through these intense experiences every day. And the only mechanism that people were using there was, was partying at night. It was like whiskey around the campfire um, and like drinking a lot because just like numbing through drinking because it was so much to feel and there was no support mm. for people who were experiencing through that, through that accompaniment work. Mm. And it got destructive. It, it really detracted from the work and got destructive in moments. And like, I, and so I really got at a young age, like we, this is not how, it, like we need more tools to do this kind of work. Show up in this kind of way is such a high, it can be so powerful and transformational and it really needs some, um, deeper understanding of what's occurring in human beings when they're showing up. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a layer I'd never thought about. So, so I'm hearing you say that someone who shows up with that willingness to help might also then in their own way need help because they're stepping into a situation that is literally life and death. That is perhaps exposing them to things they've never seen before and have been able perhaps to even shield themselves from either consciously or not. And now it's like, they're just in it. And a lot of the pressure valves we have to release in our society are not, not particularly healthy pressure valves over time. Like drinking every night hard is not going to keep you in good shape and spirits to do this good work. Right? And, then, and then you can become actually a burden in the very context you're trying to help quite easily. In fact, we're actually quite vulnerable to that. So it's like the self-care tools, emotional intelligence tools, self-awareness tools are not just like they're 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 very practical as well it's like if you're actually trying to help some someone else long term you gotta you gotta take care of yourself first or else it's actually really not that helpful yeah yeah more way of saying that same thing <laughs> yeah. mm. chelsea this uh we're coming down the home stretch here but this has been i feel really wide open right now and I feel really honored that we got to spend this time together and that you are walking your walk right that's really beautiful to see so thank you for that Um, I would love to I just have I think three more questions all of which are fairly short one really practical takeaway that I heard you mention that I love is for people to check out the artist's way as a very like Here's a thing that you, if you spent, uh, you'd be journaled every day for, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, and you spent one, some time every week or every month just being with yourself, you'd probably start to really notice some shifts in your mental, in your, in your self-awareness, your mental well-being, your inner world. Is that right? Yeah. And even just getting the book to have on your shelf, if you feel like you're not ready for that at this moment, but even just having the book around, I I had it on my shelf for like three years before I... Some friend of a friend was like, hey, I'm wanting to do this artist way. I want to be in a group with me. And I said, I was like, oh, that sounds great. It was kind of intimidating without yeah. having with. And that group of was seven of us in New York. We met every week, which is New York people don't do that. We just like got activated by something in us that we knew we wanted this support and accompaniment into something different. And it was for all of us created like profound shifts in our lives. So just to highlight that even if you just get the book, that creates pop. that could be enough for a first step. Right, right. And you don't necessarily have to go through the do the group thing and go do the twelve weeks journey to get to start to engage with it, but it might be it's there for you when you're ready to go into that journey. Yeah. Board one day, you'll go for through it for twenty minutes. I mean that's enough for now. Yeah. My my music teacher who is also a guest on on this with people here, Todd Marston, and it has led multiple artist ways groups and it's just he introduced me to it. It's, it's a life-changing thing for sure. 
is there anything else like are, are there any other tools or resources that you would given the context of our conversation today that you point people towards yeah um particularly in that kind of self if self-awareness is the first step like particularly in that space anything that comes to mind well i there's um there's a book by um an author named Parker Palmer, who is, uh, he's, he's also, he's a Quaker and he's a like, uh, teacher trainer and has this really great Institute, um, and has this book called a hidden wholeness mm. and it's so good and it's short. And that's actually where that Bonhoeffer quote that I quoted about, let the person who's without solitude, beware of community, let the person without community, beware of solitude. I, I read that in that book recently. Mm. Um, and it's, there's a lot about this premise of like, making space for like how we listen and how we ask questions. It can be quite specific and tangible for the soul to come out, quote unquote, that I think in any professional or personal environment is like, it's like really such an important part of the conversation these days, but there's so much polarization yeah. and so much us them going down. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. A hidden wholeness. Hidden wholeness. Yeah. His Parker Palmer is amazing. I haven't I actually even heard of that one yet. Um, but I will, che- I will check that out for myself and I hope other people do too. So the big question for the Wonder Dome is what is your fiercest hope for humanity? And I know that's a big question and the invitation is to just, in whatever way you feel like you can distill that down into an invitation or a possibility or some future state that you're hoping for for us. It's funny, I felt like excited and clear like right away when you're asking it, but my fiercest hope is that you know, the, the, the VUCA times we live in are in fact what we've all been wanting and waiting for. And it's the, the most clear, powerful invitation that we all have to step into what we all want, which is connection with each other and the capacity to feel our power and create power in others to create systems at work. Wow. And it's oh, yeah. possible. Like the other side of this could be the best world we could ever imagine. And that is truly possible. So holding that, holding that as a possibility, and we don't know. It's also it's not on a given. We don't take it for granted. It requires us showing up at the present moment for that to be, to be made a possibility. But it, I find it to be a really good. The more, the more I hold that vision and develop it to be, feel really real with others, it informs my how I show up at the moment with joy. You know, with like this is an opportunity. This is like a great gift in some profound ways. Our other generations didn't have the possibility of this kind of consciousness, this kind of connectivity this kind of purpose, this kind of collaboration. It's like, it's a real honor. Yeah. Oh, I'm so moved by that. It connects to what you said as an entrepreneur for yourself. These moments we're in, we think we're in, that are like, this is it, this is the end. How am I ever going to get through this? Might in fact be the very moment that strengthens you. And in the same way, collectively, you're inviting us into that. That maybe right now, the thing we're most afraid of is actually exactly what we need on the other side, which is really good. Oh, I needed to hear that. Thank you, Chelsea. That's awesome. Thanks for creating that opportunity. And Andy, your questions and your the space you hold is so powerful and beautiful. It's just, I'm really honored to have been invited to be mm. in the one. It's been a real joy. What a treat. Thank you. All right. I'm going to go ahead and press uh, stop record. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Oh, Chelsea, where can people find you if they want to find you on, on the interwebs? Uh, so our company is the Emerging Leaders Project, and the website is emergingleaders.us emergingleaders.us and my personal website is Chelsea Simpson Chelsea like the football team in England and Simpson like the show dot co (laughs) perfect thanks and I'll make sure to include all that stuff in the show notes Um, so thanks everyone for listening thanks again Chelsea and see you soon thanks so much Andy
Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. And if you're interested in learning more about my transformational coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, sign up for my newsletter at mindfulcreative.coach. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.